Good morning, friends. I'm grateful to be with you all this morning. As Thomas mentioned, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Whitney. I'm on staff here at Covenant. I work with our student ministries, and I'm grateful to be with you all this morning. We're continuing on in our study of the book of Romans. Today we'll be in Romans 15, but before we dive in, let's take a second to set our hearts on Christ. God, we come to you today asking that you would focus us. God, that you would open our hearts and our minds for what it is you have for us today. God, that you would open our hands to receive your encouragement today. We love you, Father. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Christmas 2001 was a memorable Christmas for me. I was 18 years old and I found myself celebrating Christmas on the Eastern Cape of South Africa in the bush. We were in the jungle. There were 10 of us missionaries and we were spending Christmas Eve with our brothers and sisters in Christ who were South African. We, our, our sanctuary for that night was a, a big hut-like structure. There were about 40 of us in all. The hut was made out of grass and mud. It had some wooden trusses in it. There were windows kind of cut out for ventilation and a door. The floor was dirt, but on this day it was mud because we had had a rainstorm. And we sat on wooden benches um, and that was our sanctuary. As our worship service began, we heard a buzzing sound from outside, um, and we could tell that this buzzing sound was drawing nearer. Our hosts got really excited about this sound. Um, On hindsight, we think that probably they were more excited for us to experience what was coming than for what was coming itself, but either way, there was an excitement in the room. As the the buzzing drew nearer and nearer, we continued on in our worship until suddenly a swarm of flying ants descended upon us. There were thousands of ants all around us. Apparently, after a rainstorm, ants go to church. I don't know, they were everywhere. Um, If you don't know me very well, then you probably don't know that I am a bug panicker. I don't do well in a bug situation. It is not my cup of tea. So it took everything in me to like remain calm and not run away screaming, which is what I wanted to do, but I was trying to be culturally sensitive. So I just sat there and took deep breaths. Things went to a whole new level when my seatmate turned to me and he had a handful of the ants. And it was in that moment that I realized that we were So grateful because God had provided for us a feast of ants. And so I, he had his hand out and he was like, you take one and you eat one. And I was like, oh, thanks be to God. So I, he grabbed an ant. I grabbed an ant. We kind of like cheersed. And then I I ate an ant. Flying ants, if you're curious, are crunchy and like spicy, I don't know really how to explain it, but it was, it was not the most delicious thing I've ever eaten, but I tried to be cool, right? I'm, I tried to be like, yeah, I love eating bugs. This is totally normal for me. I wanted to seem like this was very normal, but apparently my face didn't do a great job of hiding this, and the, my, our hosts thought it was very funny. They also realized that I was too polite to say no thank you, and that if they offered me an ant, I was going to eat an ant. So I had a line of children waiting <laughs> to offer me an ant. I ate probably 40 flying ants that night. Oh, I dined sufficiently. It was 
a treasure. Y'all, we laughed together. They loved watching us experience this. We ate our fill. God provided a bounty. Uh, And we celebrated. We celebrated Christmas. I love looking back on this memory because here we had two very different groups of people. We had two different groups of people with different backgrounds, different cultures, different traditions, different dietary habits, different languages, different skin colors. Yet here we were, we found ourselves under this one banner of that of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we found ourselves worshiping together, being grafted together as one in celebration of who he was. The Roman church was two very different groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, and they found themselves grafted together under this one banner, that of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they had to figure out, how, had to navigate how to move forward as one community, as a, the church, even though they were very different. Paul knew that this was going to present difficulties, So he wrote them encouragements of how to navigate this. Last week in chapter 14, John walked us through kind of the minutia of it, looking at exactly how to deal with certain things. This week in chapter 15, Paul begins to encourage them to live into this idea of Christian hospitality. How do we welcome one another when we find ourselves under one banner of Jesus Christ, but we are very different? So I want you to have that lens in mind as we read our scriptures today. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. I'll read it. Listen now as we hear the word of the Lord. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul lays out for them this encouragement of how to live together in harmony of what Christian hospitality should look like. Today we're going to look at the what, the how, and the why of Paul's encouragement to them. So what's the what? What is Paul laying out for them here? We see it in verses 1 and 2 when he says, we ought to live not to please ourselves, but to please others for their good. That is the call of Christians. It is the trademark of being a Christian, of Christian living. That's our call. And it is not unique to this one chapter and this one verse. We see it over and over and over again in Scripture. And yes, this call for us is individual. We should consider it as an individual. How am I doing this in my life with my family, with my spouse, with my friends, with my coworkers? We should consider that. But we also must remember that the book of Romans was written to a community. It was not written for individual consumption. So this call is for us as a community. 
We, as covenant, must hear this call to not live just to please ourselves, but to please others, to be a good neighbor. And we must consider that certainly with one another. But this goes far beyond our walls here. We must consider how we, as covenant, can live to please others in our city, in our state, in our country, into the nations that our call to put others first goes far beyond one another. That is how we show the love of Christ, is by doing this. This should advise, friends, how we spend our money, our time, our resources, and we as covenant must always have that in front of us as the what. It is so important. Next, let's look at the how. How in the world are we supposed to do this? Well, friends, we certainly are not able to do it out of our own strength. That is for sure. If we do this out of our own strength, it will be insincere and we will be exhausted. Why? Because we're not, we're not wired like this. This isn't how we're supposed to be. Or we are wired to be selfish, yet the call of Christ calls us to put others first. So how do we do it? Paul guides us in this, and he reminds us that the only way we can do this is if we are drinking deeply from the source and our source is that of the divine welcome of Jesus Christ. We must drink deeply from the well of welcome. When we do that, we in turn can extend that welcome to one another. It is only then that we can do that. So how does that look? Well, Paul points us to this. He points us to find encouragement in the scriptures, and he points us to God. He calls him the God of endurance and encouragement. Some ways that I am working to try to do this on a daily basis is I subscribe to our daily devotional email. Every morning, it's in my inbox. So each day, I try to find some time to set aside and to read the scriptures, to receive encouragement, and to drink deeply from that well of welcome. I also am trying in the mornings on my commute to turn off NPR and to sit quietly and just to listen to the welcome of the Spirit. Then, when I have done that, I can in turn extend the welcome of Christ to my coworkers and to my friends, to all who I encounter. The only way we're able to do this is when we drink deeply from the divine welcome of Christ. And why? What's the why? Why are we supposed to do this? We find this in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And friends, how does Christ welcome us? Christ welcomes us as is, as we are. He welcomes us bruised, broken, battered, defeated, lost, hungry, sad, grieved, doubtful, angry. He says, come as you are. Our call is to welcome one another in that exact same way. When Christ welcomes us, he then begins this incredible process of transforming us and making us more like him, of healing us, of restoring us. So we are called to welcome one another as is. Our temptation when we do that is then to try to fix each other. That is not our work to do. That is only the work of Christ. But our call is to abide with one another as we trust Christ to do that transformative work. This made me think of one of my favorite stories. It's a story from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis from the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Trader. 
It's a story of a boy named Eustace. Eustace is described as a rotten boy. Eustace is loud, he is arrogant, he's selfish, and he is very hard to be around. I assure you, none of your children are like this in the youth ministry. Eustace is on a voyage with his cousins and with his fellow travelers when they become shipwrecked on Dragon Island. They, once they're shipwrecked, Eustace takes off by himself in search of treasure. He comes across a dragon who has died and a treasure that is unguarded. He sees the treasure and immediately begins to plot how he can take it all for himself, how he can keep it all for himself. The book describes it as this, is that he began to think dragony thoughts in his dragonish heart. Eustace finds a bracelet and it's so big, it doesn't fit on his forearm, he pushes it all the way up to his bicep and he just lays down on the treasure just taking in all that he's gonna be able to do with it. He decides to sleep that night on the treasure and that he'll return to his family in the morning. When Eustace wakes up the next morning, he discovers that he has been transformed into a dragon. He's horrified, he's terrified, and the bracelet that he has had on his arm is now digging into his skin because he's grown overnight and it is terribly painful. Eustace makes his way back to the beach and is somehow able to communicate to his cousins and fellow travelers that it is him, that he's been transformed into a dragon and they see that he's in terrible pain. They have compassion on him and they immediately begin trying to figure out how they can help him transform back, how they can heal him. They quickly learn that they are unable to do that. Someone else is going to have to do that work, but what they do is they abide with him, they stay with him, they try to comfort him as they await his transformation. Eustace is transformed back into a boy, and we're gonna to finish today by reading the story of his transformation, reading the encounter that he has. Eustace has turned back into a boy, and he's explaining this encounter to his cousin, Edmund. I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked out any lion easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me, I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. It came closer up to me and looked straight into my eyes. I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke, said Edmund? I don't know, now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same, and I knew I'd have to do it, so I got up and followed it, and it led me a long way into the mountains. At last we came to the top of a mountain that I'd never seen before, and on top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. I knew it was a well, because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it but it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could just get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my arm. But the lion told me that I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on, when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. Then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, as if it was a banana. 
In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my foot in the water, I looked down and saw that it was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as it had been before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It only means I have another smaller suit on underneath the first one. And I have to get out of it, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down into the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I had thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was so longing to bathe my arm. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the two others, and I stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was so desperate. So I just laid flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just feeling the pleasure of the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I'd been. Then the lion caught hold of me, which I didn't like much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no dragon skin on, and he threw me into the water. It hurt terribly, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you, said Edmund, with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or another. In new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. Friends, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll know that Aslan is the Christ Messiah character. It was only he who could do the hard work of transforming Eustace, of restoring him, of healing him. Yet it was his cousins and his friends who abided with him, whether he had been undragoned or not. Our call, as we read in Romans 15, is this, is to put others before ourselves, to live not to please ourselves. If you find that your welcome has grown weary, Ask yourself if you're drinking from the source, the divine well of welcome of Christ. For it is only then that we can extend the welcome of Christ to one another, whether we have been undragoned or not. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that no matter what, you welcome us. And God, we pray that you might teach us to be a community that welcomes one another, dragons, skins, and all and help us to point one another towards you and your restorative hope and life and love and grace. God, teach us to be a community that seeks not to please ourselves, but to please others. From our city, to our state, to our, 
to our nation, to the nations. Help us to welcome one another because you have welcomed us. It's in your name I pray. Amen.